Hello and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, James Berman, editor of SHD Logistics. Thanks for joining us. This is Let's Talk Logistics. In this episode, we continue to recap the latest iteration of the Logistics Conference, which took place earlier this year in April. We will shortly hear excerpts from the presentations of the morning of the first day of the conference, which was titled Supply Chain Resilience. First up, we heard from Cold Chain Federation's Tom Southall, who discussed the impacts of Brexit and the pandemic. In terms of the sort of the state of the cold storage sector, last year we in partnership with property company Savills to produce the UK cold storage reports, which looked for the first time at the sort of makeup of the UK cold storage warehouse space. And from that report, we identified that there's about 678 units. Those are over 500 square feet, which is important. So we're not necessarily in this report, at least talking about cold rooms and very small walk-in fridges and freezers that you might have in, in smaller retail spaces. But about 678, what we call cold stores, covering about a million square foot space or 12,000 million square meters. Historically, cold storage has been underinvested, particularly since the, the sort of financial crash in around 2008. Cold stores are expensive to build, so you need to have confidence in the in the kind of market to be able to invest in those. And it's certainly we've seen sort of 10 years of, of very much underinvestment. And we know from our work that we have a, a very aging cold storage market within the UK. And it's becoming more kind of spread for some of the newer stores, very energy efficient, lots of new technology going in there. But we still have cold storage, which is a number of decades old, which is sort of lagging behind in terms of some of those kind of sustainability metrics. But there's a very active pipeline at the moment, lots of investment going into the cold chain, lots of big warehouses under construction. So about 16.7 million square foot in development at the moment of new cold storage space. And just to be clear, what we're talking about there is chilled and frozen warehousing. Setting scene in terms of resilience in the cold chain, it's very much been a number of years of, of disruption due to Brexit and then latterly sort of COVID. When we look at Brexit, what we've tried to do here is kind of outline all of the different impacts that have affected the cold chain over the last five years since the initial referendum. The line you can see at the bottom is our kind of nominal indication of capacity of the cold chain, because what we've seen throughout that period is various kind of fluctuations in in sort of stockpiling and demand on the cold chain, particularly frozen. Obviously, with chilled food, it's, it's very difficult to stockpile because it has a very limited shelf life by definition. But with frozen, obviously, you can freeze that down and, and store it for a year beyond until the time when it's you know ready to, to go to market. We have seen, as I'll come to, at certain times, a big shift, lots of that chilled product, perhaps where it's not required, maybe where during COVID airlines rapidly shut down and they needed to freeze down some of that product in order to prevent throwing it away, big spikes in sort of frozen requirements. But really, yeah, there's been a a demand on the market right through since the initial referendum in, in 2016. When we talk about fullness, the orange line is kind of indicating fullness. In terms of capacity, that's kind of anything above sort of 90% of the pallet spaces occupied. And the reason that's not 100 is because, you know, often there's because of the rapid movement of pallets, there's often space on a shelf that's just about to be filled or customers reserving space perhaps for the shipment that they're expecting. So we we kind of class anything above 90% as as sort of full. And lots of times over the last four years, we've kind of gone above that and companies have had to either turn down business or look at emergency measures in terms of getting in short-term standby cold stores or re-racking that kind of thing where possible. But yeah, throughout the last five years, initially that referendum and and sort of stockpiling and panic around that, going through to to the general election we had in in 2017, 
but really the first implications were where we had deals that were being proposed and deadlines think about that long we had lots of times where a deadline was set in stone if we don't make a deal by this point you know the deal's off or, or we're going to crash out of europe and each time that happened there was lots of demand on on the cold chain lots of slight changes in consumer behavior lots of businesses looking to to safeguard their operations especially those that importing from europe getting those stored frozen down and that happened a number of times over the last few years every time there was that no deal or there was a, a political argument pressure was felt on the cold chain and, and on demand for our services we feel that the, the cold chain dealt with that very well as we all know that is what logistics does it's reacting to sort of short-term demands and reacting to just in case demands of customers so highlighting these isn't to say that we haven't been able to cope and it was a necessarily a crisis for the cold chain it was more a crisis for the country that the cold chain has, has stepped up to to deliver on but our members and our, our companies have had to to deal with that kind of throughout the last number of years and right down to the end point which perhaps it came to a, a bit of a crux towards the end of last year again more kind of deal no deal haggling stockpiling kind of right up until that date and then of course when we came to the end of last year the end of the transition period we had lots more disruption at the border with them um, linking into covid so kind of the two crises sort of rolled into one another but yeah the overall message is it's been lots of disruption lots of demand to freeze down product any slight respite for example when we officially kind of left the european union in january 2020 a bit of a respite for the industry and in terms of product moving again when that kind of initial oh actually it's not quite as dramatic and as bad as we thought and we've actually got this year transition period it quickly picked up again to become full so i mentioned the end of 2019 all through kind of last year the government were preparing for what they call the worst case scenario at the border when it came to the end of transition period and operation yellow hammer and measures at Kent particularly to cope with the backlog of HGVs that would not be ready for all the additional checks, which is very much the other side of this. Businesses trying to prepare themselves for the huge range of additional checks that might be required in the event of certain deals to do with Brexit. Every time those changed, it had different implications for the severity of those checks or the requirement for kind of animal health checks and, and things like that. So we were working hard in the background to try and make sure our members understood. But really, it wasn't until fairly last minute that we knew exactly how that would operate. And, and still, in some cases, you know, that's being worked out, particularly when it comes to Northern Ireland and things like that. But yeah, the scenarios the government were working towards were for huge disruption of the border and also for sort of flows of food across the border. We didn't see that quite so much when it came to January, certainly in terms of issues at the border. And I think that was probably due to the sort of dry run we had when um, France closed its borders due to COVID and we had those terrible kind of backlogs of, of trucks trying to get back over the border. And I think essentially that put people off when it came to January. Most businesses were operating on a wait and see basis. Don't go on day one, see what happens, see how bad it is before sort of tentatively trying and seeing if, if you can get through. And I think that certainly stopped the backlogs of trucks, but it did hugely impact trade. And we saw a massive drop off in trade in January, which did start to pick up in February. And is still operating below levels, but has picked up. But yeah, there's been a huge readjustment for hallways in particular, getting used to the new checks required, which have been slowly introduced. Um, and at the moment, still on the export side, we'll see those coming back in for importing from October this year. So we're certainly not out of the woods yet. And there's certainly been a huge readjustment for businesses who export food from Europe. Some have managed to adjust, some have opened up operations within Europe to cope. The smaller businesses where the extra paperwork and requirements have pushed up the cost of not being able to reopen kind of that side of their business. So huge adjustments going on. 
But again, the cold chain has coped, but we're not out of the woods yet. We've got lots more um, issues to come when it comes to more checks on imports. So just moving on to the, I guess, the second crisis, which kind of overlapped COVID-19. And this saw sort of a huge shakeup. The line's back again. So the line kind of takes into account both COVID and Brexit. But probably much more recent in the memory, lots of the, the big announcements to do with, with COVID, which again had huge implications on the cold chain. First, we had the sort of panic buying from consumers in retail and supermarkets. And that, as you can imagine, caused those cold chain businesses serving retail to be moving product out and struggling to keep up with supply, or, or at least the manufacturers were struggling to keep up with supply, which caused a drop off in capacity. But the thing that really kind of pushed that back up again was, was closure of hospitality. And as I mentioned, lots of hospitality businesses, wholesalers, airlines, all sorts of people were looking to preserve their products by freezing that down. Um, and we saw unprecedented demand, really. Uh, lots of people not being able to find frozen storage to be able to house that product. Essentially, for COVID, the capacity stayed very high all through the various lockdowns, perhaps for obvious reasons. What we've seen is a big change in the way consumers are behaving, um, which is obviously, again, impacted how we do cold chain logistics and all logistics in general. A huge spike in kind of online and home deliveries from retailers, moving from a 8% market share before the pandemic to about 17% now, it's almost doubling what took kind of decades to get up to, to sort of 8% or at least a decade um, and doubled almost overnight. Sort of bricks and mortar retailing has stayed more or less online, but we've seen a big surge in, in things like Deliveroo and, and Just Eat and those kind of home deliveries. And that's obviously shook up the way we, we deliver food. Obviously, the vaccine is also a big thing for the cold chain, particularly the Pfizer vaccine at the start, which had super cold temperatures, which actually went kind of beyond our regular cold chain, which might operate sort of down to sort of minus 30, minus 70, 80 is a very much different ball game. Um, but to a hats off, I guess, to the, the manufacturer of that vaccine to come up with also a distribution model in terms of the cool boxes and, and dry ice and things like that to get that around. But again, I think it's another area where the, the cold chain, we're used to handling vaccines with, with flu vaccines and everything else. So it was a case of sort of scaling up almost what we already do, but in a much quicker timescale. And, and again, I think the robust cold chain has stood up to that challenge. I covered kind of the investment boom, and that's something that's carrying on. But I just wanted to finish by covering what we call the kind of crisis to come, which is climate change and the cold chain. As a high energy intensive subset of logistics, be it for the refrigeration systems in our cold stores or the way of TRUs we use to transport food on vehicles, we use a lot of energy. And we're conscious as a federation, our members are conscious that Due to the government's commitments and the need to reduce emissions from all sources, be it air quality or carbon, there's huge kind of changes coming to the cold chain. We have a, an interesting role that the cold chain is very much at the forefront of preventing food losses. So we have a big kind of carbon benefit in that sense. And, and our developed cold chain that we have in the UK is very much the envy, if you like, of developing nations who are looking to sort of follow our model. So we have to balance that benefit with the emissions that we get from our operations. And all projections are for, for an increase in the requirement for cold chain. So we've got to find a way to continue doing what we're doing, doing it more, but doing it much more sustainably. We've shown good progress in this. So the Cold Chain Federation run a climate change agreement for cold stores, which is a, an energy efficiency scheme run by the government. And we've shown good progress to meet the targets set by government on that since its inception. It's been running for sort of 15 years, but we know we're going to have to do a lot more. Recently had new targets, so a lot more tough on that scheme. Um, and we've done well so far, but we expect that to get more challenging. We've got to cope with a, a rapid adoption of technology. This example talks about solar and how long it's took for that to move from kind of conception in the 1950s through to 
relatively cheap and, and mass-produced panels, and that's took kind of 50 years. But we've got to move a lot quicker if we're to, to sort of decarbonize well, lots of elements of the supply chain, but particularly cold chain. And that might include changes to temperature monitoring, so moving from airspace to, to product cooling to help identify um, fluctuations and be able to deal with those, and hopefully move to a system where we can run a smoother cold chain so that instead of having lots of times, perhaps where it's transferring from building to vehicle where temperature might spike, move to an area where because we're monitoring it better, that's more smooth, we don't have that spike. And that might mean that we can adjust some of the overchilling that tends to occur within the cold chain. So we might be able to raise the temperature by a couple of degrees, which could have the kind of big implications on, on energy use, as well as all the other stuff around um, energy efficiency, improving the standard of our cold stores and things like that. Cold Chain Federation will be providing an update on how the rest of the year planned out at IMHX Connect in September. The second presentation came from Sally Duggleby, Vice President of Capital and Leasing at Prologis UK, who spoke to attendees on the role of freight in logistics. Over the last two decades, rail freight has evolved, once associated with the supply of coal to power stations or construction aggregates. Today's freight trains are just as likely to be carrying oranges from Spain, alcohol from Scotland, Swedish design flat pack furniture or bottled water from France. Alongside its normal levels of activity, during the pandemic, rail freight has run longer trains and carried new flows of PPE and other essential items to ensure demand is met. Each year, rail freight transport worth about £30 billion the length and breadth of the UK and plays a key role in resilient supply chains. The latest stats for three years up to Christmas show rail freight grew by 2% on the year before. This is despite port congestion and the second UK lockdown affecting its operations. This growth took thousands of lorry journeys off our roads, which at the time of retail peak and driver shortage offered more resource for store and less mile deliveries, for instance. Overall, freight boosts the UK economy by £1.7 billion per year. Freight arrival and departure on time performance on the network is over 95%. We hear so much that is wrong about rail, yet we don't actually consider what it does well. For those of you who import containerised freight, there is a good chance rail already undertakes part of the journey, particularly to the Midlands and North, with around 25% of all containerised freight through Felixstowe now departing by train. There's been historic industry focus on passenger services and they have seen significant growth over the last 20 years. However, freight has also been growing. Around 45% of all freight traffic now being carried are actually consumer goods. Freight is no longer anonymous as a result of our consumption. It's our clothing, our household goods, and our evening meals. So the desk you are working at or the monitor you are watching me on may at some point have traveled by rail and possibly even passed through a Perilogis warehouse. Freight trains are carrying new types of containerised traffic, longer length 15.7 metre units and curtain side swap bodies, so there is an option to deliver most types of cargo these days. The decline in passenger traffic has meant that freight is now running faster and longer with more containers per train. These gains are set to be retained with freight now being given more focus and having been repositioned in people's minds. One could argue, however, that the industry could be doing more to raise awareness at this time. Network Rail has been challenged by their chief executive, Andrew Haynes, to leverage freight. They're not anticipating passenger numbers to return any time soon and have stated they now have the opportunity to bring freight to the table in a lot of the forums they would not have typically been able to in the past. 
But you might think, as I do, what happens when rail goes wrong? Well, every so often it does, of course. But then so does road. Traffic accidents, power lines down on the M1 last week, for instance, are the perennial problems with the M25. I'm not looking at rail as a single solution, but as part of an integrated strategy. It has already started to offer so many hidden benefits to users, with some end delivery recipients not even knowing they're part of a rail supply chain, final miles by road. As businesses wrestle with their own ambitious targets around net zero carbon, and consumers demand even more information about the sustainability credentials of the products they are buying, one thing is certain. The method of transport used at every stage of the supply chain process will matter more than ever. And rail freight has an important part to play in helping the industry get ahead of the carbon curve. In the UK, one in four sea containers arriving or departing from a port is carried by rail. Each freight train removes 17,000 lorries from the UK's roads every year, resulting in 994 million fewer HGV miles every year. This is equivalent to over 2,000 trips to the moon and back. Rail generates 24% of the equivalent road carbon emissions for every tonne moved. Longer trains at 775 metres are even more efficient and will further remove carbon emissions. UK rail freight is surprisingly cost-effective means of transportation for smaller companies who can choose to move single container loads or explore sharing loads with another company. This can help to achieve cost savings and drive efficiencies. Having access to more than one terminal, such as that at Durft, means that there are more trains and more providers to choose from too. And being on terminal means fewer middle miles and later shipping cut-off times, of course. Customers have noticeably altering their supply chains over the last 12 months to diversify routes and modes of transportation to cope with shocks such as those experienced over the period. These are incremental shifts rather than wholesale changes, of course. HS2 will certainly create more slots for freight as it will take the fastest trains off the existing network onto the new rail line, providing more slots for freight on the old route, connecting first with the West Coast mainline at Crewe. Once HS2 services are introduced from Euston, replacing most of the long distance services throughout central and northwest regions, the industry will be able to access the resulting release of capacity. Interest in light logistics, with freight being carried on passenger trains or adapted passenger trains, is growing. Services are already in place with the intercity rail freight responsible for delivering medical supplies on a small scale on passenger trains for instance, and companies such as Royal Mail are repurposing passenger trains to run from the new facility at Durft. Royal Mail have successfully operated these kind of trains for over 20 years, and current power source sector growth suggests that a move to rail may be an opportunity to reintroduce city centre deliveries. The key to all rail freight is the efficiency of the origin and destination facilities, of course. Whether it is an intermodal terminal building handling containers, or a platform in a rail-connected warehouse, loading a converted passenger style train, choosing the right format is essential. Prologis understands this and they're working with new and existing occupiers to develop solutions. Prologis regularly contributes articles to SHD. To read more about the topics covered in Sally's presentation, you can download the SHD Logistics app on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Last on the morning's schedules, was Harry Watts, recently appointed Managing Director at SEC Storage Group, who posed and then went on to answer the question, what is warehouse agility? Here is the excerpt. In a warehouse setting specifically, and I think to some degree in general, 
one of the things that I think is really important to remember is that agility is something that is pre-planned and it should be proactive and not reactive. And this is kind of the, the thrust of a lot of what I'll say today. Reason number one, in my opinion, of why warehouse agility is important, that is, is that it's an excellent antidote for uncertainty and turbulence in a market. And I think we all know we've got plenty of that going about at the moment. The second reason I believe that warehouse agility is, is hugely important and relevant, particularly today, is the fact that we are currently um, going through probably the most disruptive period in our history of logistics change as organisations recognise the benefits and the servitization that logistics offers. And even the most traditional sectors such as agriculture, you can see a, a vertical farm project on the screen that currently designing, are being challenged hugely by transformative considerations of how logistics can be used and utilised to gain competitive advantage. And I think it's important to say that this disruption, if it hasn't already come to you, um, it probably is. And therefore, having the agility to be able to move with the times is very important. Agility is an evidence-based science. We can achieve agility by working numbers, by looking at information and making good strategic decisions from the outset. And we should never fall into the trap of believing that it is solely about the culture of your employees. That helps. That's an enabler. But the most effective way of achieving agility, in my experience, is by good pre-planning and using data um, to model what could or might happen, designing and considering accordingly. When you are planning strategy for a warehouse, there are three things you need to know. First is growth. You know, how much, how quickly, from where, how likely is it going to happen? The next things you should be considering are desirable changes. Um, so, you know, what do you want to happen? What are you planning to happen? And what will the impact of those things be? What opportunities might arise and how likely, again, are they to happen? The last factor is undesirable change. This is often doubt a little bit. Don't leave it out. Are there changes that could be enforced externally? Could we have another mass supply chain disruption? Could your competitors do something and um, that will impact your business? And if they do, what would the impact be? What are the threats that you're going to see? And also, again, how likely are these threats to realise? Understanding all of these factors is essential in being able to design an agile solution in the future. The way in which we do this as an organisation is we've developed a unique and a very sophisticated AI bot called Elsa. Elsa ensures that everything lives somewhere appropriate. And what she does is she essentially takes all of your SKUs and all of the data that we've just gathered and she uses that information to be able to come up with a suggestion about the right type of pick face or the most efficient or optimal type of pick face that we can then use to design out our solution and create designs that fit your business today and obviously your business in the future. Once you've developed a model of today and you've analysed what does today look like, then you want to use that model to create scenarios of what next year and the year after and year four, year five look like. And the way to do that initially in our book is to create a number of scenarios and attach some probabilities of how likely they are to happen. And consider in year four or five, will you bring on that new product line that is a game changer? Will you acquire a new business that has a different physical property? You know, could you outsource aspects of, of what you do to someone else? And if you did, how would that impact the warehouse's operation and how would that impact your decision making today? The step five is, is to then compare them and compare all of them. You know, look at the different potential options and say, well, what are the differences? Are there any trends? Can I handle 
the change in the solutions that I've already proposed. You know, so if I've got one option on the table, can that deal with option A in year four? And if not, what would need to change? How disruptive would that be? How impactful would that be? And this can help you overall understand how to make your warehouse more agile. The potential impact of change and how disruptive some of these events could be to your warehouse. You can then go through a process of actually going, well, how can I design the flexibility in? You know, how can I mitigate against those risks of change by actually designing a facility that can respond to them? And, you know, there are many ways of doing this. Um, I would speak to a, a warehouse design expert um, if you're not sure how to. Um, but a classic example for illustration is, is the question of a rack supported structure versus a mezzanine floor. Mezzanine floors are typically more expensive, but they have open areas that can be repurposed in the future, whereas rack supported structure are slightly more fixed in, in terms of their offering. The mezzanine floor has a premium, but that premium may be worth it for the flexibility that it offers you in the future.